discovering the names, qualities, and character of God. And if we're going to worship God, we've got to understand who he is and how to relate to him properly and acceptably. Uh, we, uh, Cole and I were meeting with an individual who's about to get baptized uh, yesterday, and they were asking great questions um, about the sort of hot topics of the day. Um, a lot of those hot topics, as you know, include things like sexuality and um, also pluralism. Um, pluralism in terms of can't all roads lead to God? And the example that we were giving yesterday when we were talking is that the God that we're serving is one God, and he's one person, one, three persons in one, and he has certain qualities. He's, he's, he's an individual, though. God's not a philosophy, but he's a person. And because of that, if you're going to relate to him, it's much like a marriage, much like a marriage. It, it'd be like if um, a plur- in a pluralistic mentality, if I was to be married to my wife, B, who I, which I am, and um, <laughs> I was to have the idea, much like people do today, of pluralism, it would be the idea of me saying, hey, as long as I go home to a woman at night, it doesn't really matter whether it's B or not because at least I'm gone home to be faithful to a woman. And the obvious response to me would be that's an error because it's not your wife. There's only one B, only one character and one quality, one person who possesses the qualities and character that she does that are unique and distinct from every other woman on the earth. And so regardless of whether the fact that I'm going to have relationship with a woman, I've got to go to my wife, not just any woman, correct? And in the same way, when we go to God, he has certain qualities that are distinct to him. And that there's only one God and there are no others. He said, I will not share my glory with another. The only worship that is due anyone on this earth is the God of the Bible who's revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and who we have these names throughout the Old Testament describing who he is and his qualities and character. So it helps us to know how to relate with him. Um, how we're to respond to him in the midst of life circumstances. And last week we were talking about two of those names. Um, we ended with, um, we, we talked about um, him um, being Adonai, the Lord of all the earth, as he revealed himself. Not, and that was significant because he wasn't just Lord of the people who believed in him. He was Lord over all creation. He was Lord over all creation and therefore all creation had a responsibility to serve him as master. And we also went to the fact that he's Jehovah Jireh, right? Jehovah Jireh, who is our provider. And that provision was ultimately found in the person of Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to uh, talk about two other names as he's revealed himself, looking at encounters that the Israelites, after they were coming out of Egypt, learned about God under Moses' leadership. And they found God, this God who was revealing himself to reveal himself in two names. Now, I'm excited about uh, talking about these two names today because if you've been with us for any period of time, uh, they're actually scriptures and stories that we've reviewed before in other messages in a different context. But it's good to go back to those same things and continue to unpack it, right? Because when we have 30 minutes to talk through scripture that's meant to be applicable for all eternity, right? There's a lot more than a 30-minute message that could fully explain what God's trying to communicate. And today we're going to go to two scriptures. If you want to look in your Bibles today, you can turn to Exodus chapter 15 and then Exodus chapter 17. And the two names we're going to talk about today that God revealed himself as is is Jehovah Rophi 
and also Jehovah Nisi. Jehovah Rophi and Jehovah Nisi. How many people have heard those names before? Jehovah Rophi and Jehovah Nisi, okay? The first names that we were covering were a little bit more familiar. When we talk about Jehovah Adonai or Yahweh, those were more familiar names. When we keep going in this series, we'll get to some of the less familiar names, but just as important, okay? And so when we pray, let's uh, ask God to give us understanding and point us to the person of Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today. Lord, we thank you that you have shown yourself to um, be the penultimate God, the only living God expressed through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, as we continue to get to know who you are and trust you in a greater fashion, God, we're asking you that today you would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our understanding that we might see you as both Jehovah Rophi and Jehovah Nisi today in our individual and present lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Let's talk about Jehovah Rophi. If you would, please, first of all, turn with me to Exodus 15. We're going to start in verse 22. It says, Then Moses made Israel, after they had come out of Egypt, the great exodus in Egypt. And after uh, the great exodus in Egypt, you see that there was this great song of deliverance that Moses had um, sung, and he was leading the people to honor God in because of all that he had done. So this is taking place after that. It said, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So God had just delivered them through water by his miraculous power, drowned their enemies in the Red Sea, and now they're going to a place by God's leading that has no water. When they came to Marah, They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your your healer. Then they came to Elim, uh, where uh, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So when you read this story, you see that this is very similar to the lives that we're leading. You see that God himself, when he saves you, it's like the great deliverance or the exodus out of Egypt. It's like the exodus out of Egypt where he himself initiates it because he sees our sufferings and hears our cries. Whether you knew to cry out to God or not, God it still sees and God still hears humanity's need and he still hears their cries. And in the midst of that need and those cries, he comes and he initiates relationship with them. And he says, I'm going to bring you out by great signs and wonders. I'm going to bring you out of your slavery um, in Egypt, which was physical for the Israelites at the time, but oftentimes is spiritual and internal for us. 
It's a bondage to sin. It's a bondage to doing things that we know are wrong, but we find no power to overcome in and of ourselves. But God initiates, and then he brings them to the place of the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, they're trapped, if you remember the story. They're trapped, and they get to the edge of the sea, and they see the armies of Pharaoh coming after them, behind them, ready to take them back into slavery, and they see this great water source, which they cannot cross on their own, preventing them from going to the place of promise that God has for them. And God said in that moment to Moses, he said, as Elohim, he said, raise up this staff and part the waters. And the waters, by God's miraculous power, began to part, and then the scripture says in the New Testament that the Israelites... Israelites were metaphorically baptized into Moses as they went through the waters of the Red Sea by God's supernatural hand, meaning that their deliverance came not because of anything that they had done, but because the staff of Elohim was raised over the waters and in the midst of his power being demonstrated, they were saved. That is the story and that is the picture of our salvation in God. The only way that we're able to be saved is because Jesus Christ came and led a a sinless life for us. He performed miracles on the cross. He took the punishment for our sin. Three days later, he was resurrected by God's power from the dead to not only provide forgiveness of sins for us, but new life. New life in him. Just like the Israelites going through the Red Sea were being introduced into new life. But then what you see is after God's miraculous hand of deliverance, they're going, celebrating, saying, God, praise you for all that you've done. But then they come to this other place where there is no water. And all of a sudden, is that not like our lives? Is that not like our lives? It's like God just performed a miracle, but then immediately after the miracle, then there's difficulty. Immediately after the deliverance that he's provided for us, there's a place where it's like God... You have got to come through again. And our natural temptation, just like the Israelites, is to respond with grumbling and complaining. Is that not true? Even though God just delivered us, when we come right after that to a place of difficulty, we begin to grumble and complain and, matter of fact, point fingers at the ones who are trying to encourage us in the things of God in the first place. Isn't that true? Has anybody ever found that to be the case before? But then God obviously shows himself strong again. And then they come to this place right after having (coughs) no water to this place where the water was there, but it was bitter. It was there, but it was bitter. And the people, though they had natural God-given thirst, couldn't be satisfied by the water that he had led them to. And that is often like our lives. You have natural needs. They are relational. You have natural needs. Sometimes they're more intimate, sexual. You have natural needs where there are hungers within you that need to be filled. And a lot of times when you're following God, God will bring you to a place where it seems like the very thing that you're trying to satisfy yourself with, even a sense of purpose in the midst of your work life or calling. You're going to those waters trying to be satisfied internally by the God-given desires that he's given you, but you find that the things you're trying to satisfy yourself with are bitter. They're bitter, and you can't drink them. They do not satisfy you. Matter of fact, if you drink them too much, they'll poison you. They're poison you. You have to come to grips with that in Chicago. Anybody filter their water here? Okay, anybody move from one place to another, having rented one location to another, and then as soon as you go into the new location, you turn on the tap, 
and the water just looks bitter. How do you know that? It's orange, okay? And the rust comes out, okay? And you have to let it flow for a little bit before it's safe to drink. And the thing is, is that the people were coming to this place that God had led them to, and then all of a sudden they're like, God, we trusted you, and now this place where you've brought us is bitter. It does not satisfy my soul. But God does not leave us there. All of a sudden, what he does is he says, I'm testing you to see that the same confidence you had with me, knowing that you are coming through the waters of the Red Sea, having been delivered in Egypt, you'll trust me going forward in your future, knowing that I'll provide for you, even when it looks like I'm not, when you come to the waters that seem bitter. And he always has a response and he always has a solution if we continue to look to him and trust him. So what did he do? They cried out. Moses began to cry out to him. And then he said, of all things, hey, listen, the solution for this is I'm going to show myself as Jehovah Rophi. God, your healer, by you, and get, by go, you, Moses, going and getting a log of all things. Getting a log and throwing it into the water. And then saying, hey, guys, it's cool now, drink. Does that seem strange to anyone? Okay, I'm not going to follow you on a, like a desert, like a desert tour. It's like, yeah, don't worry, Ron, the waters are fine. I threw a brick into it. It's good to drink. It's like, that seems strange, guys. It seems strange that God would say, go throw a log into the water, and that which was bitter, which might have poisoned you before, you can now drink. But it's the thing that God used to actually perform a miracle and show himself as God the healer. And whenever we look at the word rofi in the scripture, we see that it was a word that was used about 60 to 70 times in the Old Testament. And it always carried with it the meaning to heal, to restore, to cure, or a physician. When God is being declared as Jehovah Rophi, the great healer, and he's healing through this miracle, it was because of the fact that he's saying, I'm the supernatural God, that even when it looks like you're being led by me into a place of need, I'm the God who heals you. Not just physically, but I heal the internal, soulish brokenness that you've been trying to live under feeding yourself, or even giving yourself drink of things that will not satisfy you, but will instead poison your life. And I'm telling you that if you come to me and obey me and actually throw into the waters that log that I give you instruction to do, not only will I heal your bodies, but I'll heal your souls. What was that log giving us a picture of? It was giving us a picture of not only God's supernatural power, because the Israelites knew that, but everything was pointing to the person of Christ. And Christ was that great log that was thrown into our lives. Christ was that great log that was thrown into the waters of our bitterness, into the brokenness of our souls. Whenever we were trying to be satisfied by other waters that would poison us, relationships, career pursuits, ideologies that would poison us rather than satisfy us. He says, repent and look to me. Look to that log that I'm throwing into the waters. And what was that log? It was the great tree. It was the great cross of Jesus Christ. 
the cross of Jesus Christ that was thrown in the midst of our situations. And he said, every one of you have gone astray, but I'm telling you to come back. And I'm telling you to get your soul satisfied by the waters that only I can provide. That when I intervene, then I'll not only heal your bodies, but I'll heal your souls. How do we know this? We know it because Peter, in 1 Peter 2, verses 24 through 25, said this about Jesus. He himself bore our sins. Bore our sins in his body. Where? On the tree. See, a lot of times the, these things that seem outlandish are sort of like, why in the world is he using this as a type? They're a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. They're a foreshadowing of his work. They're a foreshadowing of what he would accomplish. And he's saying, you need to look to the log that's going to be introduced into the waters. And those, that log introduced into the waters is going to heal you. It's going to heal your soul. You, can, you might have come out of broken relationships before. And why were those relationships broken? They were broken because of sin. Sin that either we committed, right, in our sexual morality or the way we treated the person. Or they were, um, it was sin because of just our attitudes and our dispositions towards people that tore them apart, right? And they were poison to those relationships, poison to the soul. But then the cross, the log of Christ is introduced, and then all of a sudden, he bears our sins on that tree. The log is introduced, and on the cross, he takes the punishment on himself, and it says that we might die to sin. That's the obedience he was pointing to. He said that you might not any longer live in the way you used to. Live in the way that was poisoning you. <coughs> Excuse me. You might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but, now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's saying, when I introduce this log, it's going to be for the healing. I'm going to express myself as Jehovah Rophi. We know this a little bit further because in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, it says the angel then showed me. This was John the apostle who walked with Jesus. He was John the revelator who was walking. And he says, I'm going to give you a picture of this ultimate culmination of the healing that Jesus is bringing through his hanging on the cross not only taking punishment, but giving the people to turn, the ability and power to repent and turn in obedience to his ways. He said, then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life. And it was no longer bitter, but it was bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. He's bringing restoration to all things. He previously cut off the people from, their, uh, from the tree of life because of their sin, made mankind mortal, limited his days. But he says that I'm giving you eternal life through my son, bringing you back to the tree that's going to provide life for you. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, 
and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God says, I'm going to bring you to a place where I heal you through the introduction of my log, and it's going to be healing for the nations, not just for you, but for the nations. And as I introduce my wog into the bitterness of the waters of the nations, I'll turn them in repentance to my ways, to the obedience that I was calling them to at the waters of Marah. And as they come back in obedience, then their souls will be healed, as well as their physical bodies, whether it be now or later. Because in the resurrection, he says there's no more crying, suffering, or pain, because the old order of things have gone away. And he said he's made all things new. All things new. That's him describing himself as Jehovah Rophi. But the question today is how have you been going to other waters for the satisfying of your soul? What have you been going to besides him to satisfy your psyche, your relationships, your mind, your heart, and found that those things that you've been going to are in fact not just dissatisfying, but they're bitter. They're bitter and they're tearing me apart. Well, the good news is, is that regardless of what comes to mind, we can come to him at the cross. And he can introduce through repentance and coming back to his ways the sweetness of the waters that will truly satisfy you. That's why Jesus says, I'm the living water. Learn to come to me when you're following me. And even if it looks like as you're following me, you're hitting a roadblock and coming to waters that are bitter. Come to me, I'll introduce my ways through the cross and those bitter waters will turn sweet for you. And the relationships coming through my cross will actually satisfy you. The pursuits that you have on a daily basis rather than running you into a ground will actually be life-giving. Like Jesus said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. He said to his disciples, my food, what satisfies me and fills me is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. If you find your work dissatisfying and in fact bitter, it might be because you haven't submitted it to him at the cross. You haven't submitted it to him and said, what do you want me to do with my life and times as service unto you that you might make these bitter waters sweet? And he says, when you do so, I'll actually satisfy you and you'll not thirst again. Because I am the cross and the log, I'm Jehovah Rophi, the one who's introduced and satisfies you. But he also says, I'm Jehovah Nisi. I'm Jehovah Nisi. And the Israelites went from Mara, where the waters were bitter to Elim, the place of refreshing and rest. They then found themselves in Rephidim where there was no water at all. And there they encountered people called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were descendants of a man named Esau. And if you're familiar with the biblical stories, after Abraham was given children, he, he had a son of promise named Isaac. And Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Jacob was later to be named Israel, after which the modern-day nation of Israel is named, and Esau his brother. You see that Esau also had children, even though he wasn't a uh, child of promise, and they were a cantankerous group that often fought against Israel and the purposes that God had for him. And we see that as the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, 
they meet these Amalekites who would have been somewhat distant descendants of theirs, and they're not, meant, they're not met with an embrace, but they're met with war when they find themselves encountering these people that should have been for them and not against them, cheering their deliverance rather than being an obstacle to it. And my goodness, this is when we need Jehovah Nissi, is it not? This is when we need God to show up because when we're following God, oftentimes the very people who should be your greatest cheerleaders are sometimes the people who are your greatest detractors. Has anybody found that to be the case before? Whether it be family members or friends or co-workers or even sometimes the people who once were your people who were leading you to the things of God, now they're actually the people who are providing obstacles for you in continuing to pursue the things of God. Exodus 17 is giving us a picture of this and it shows God as Jehovah Nissi where we see this in verse 8. It says, Then Amalek, who were the descendants of Esau, came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, who was his aide, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now remember, this is the same staff of God that began to be, mean something to the Israelites, right? If you could imagine coming out of Egypt and having a recognition of that staff. Anytime that you saw that staff, you'd be like, all right, God's here. <laughs> all right, it's going to be okay, you know what I mean? Because God's with us, and he's going to do something because of that mighty stick, right? Do you, ever, do you ever have, remember growing up and having friends like that? Like you were on the playground, and people were starting to get into a scrap, and then you had that one dude who was like, you know, Big Johnny, bigger than all the other kids. <laughs> He was abnormally large, and he would come, like, bounding in because he was on your side. And then it's like, oh, it's all going to be fine now because Big John. Anybody? No, nobody had Big Johnny. Okay, but here's the point. <laughs> okay, here's the point. You know, you know that God Almighty was representing his might and power with that stick. And Moses is saying, I'm going to go up on the hill, and I'm going to take that staff in my hand. I'm going to take that staff in my hand, and you go and fight. You go and fight the Amalekites. And we know that the story goes that as long as Moses held up the staff, the Israelites were winning. Whenever he lowered the staff, the Amalekites were winning. We talked about this before, but we need to see that whenever God is bringing about the victory for the Israelites, Moses builds an altar after they win the battle and says, I'm going to call my God the Lord my banner, which is Jehovah Nissi. He's the Lord, my banner. Now, whenever we're talking about the Lord, my banner, what that means is not just what we think about in more uh, modern war where there was a flag up on a pole, but what a banner was back in the day was a wooden staff and it had an ornament on it that glistened or glittered in the sun. And so you can imagine the Israelites down on the battlefield and Moses up on the hill and the sun shining. And whenever the Israelites were in battle and they were getting discouraged or worn out and Moses' hands were up, they looked to it and they saw that staff. And it was like, oh my goodness, God's with us. I'm reminded that God's with us and then I have courage and strength to continue to fight. And then all of a sudden God worked on their behalf and overcame the armies that were coming against them. But whenever those hands were down and the banner wasn't clearly seen, then they were discouraged and then they began to be overcome. 
And what God's saying is that, listen, in my salvation out of the Red Sea, in my first and penultimate salvation, I told you to stand still, right? At the Red Sea, I told you to stand still because I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do the work, and I'm going to do what you can't do. I'm going to open the Red Sea and provide for your deliverance. Watch this now. But here, here at Rephidim, God says, I want you to go and fight. There's a difference. At the Red Sea, he said, stand still, and I'm going to work the deliverance. At Rephidim, he says, now I'm going to have you grow up a little bit. And isn't that the truth of what happens after we've walked with God for a little while? At first, it seemed like he did it all for us. It was the honeymoon phase. You remember that? When it's like everything was hunky-dory and easy and everything was given to you all by faith. You didn't have much faith, but you just had God giving you all his gifts and blessings. And it was like, oh, this is great. Life is just better. And then all of a sudden, you mature a little bit and then begin to hit situations and circumstances in your life. Maybe it's your relationship with your spouse, it's your work life or something of that nature. And then you have to fight. Fight by faith into the things that God's called you to do. And he says, I'm causing you to grow up in faith by allowing you to fight at Rephidim. At at the Red Sea, your salvation is based on my work alone. We're saved by grace through faith. Amen? We can't do anything to save ourselves. It had to be the complete work of Christ. But here's, here's the key. Please don't miss this. When we're walking and working out that salvation with fear and trembling, and walking into the purposes of God, he calls us to fight. And if you're going to come into what God has for you, you've got to learn to fight. But just like the Israelites on the hill, you've got to learn to discipline yourself to look to Jehovah Nissi, our banner. Because the weapons that we fight with, the Bible says, aren't carnal. The war that we're waging isn't against flesh and blood, right? If you try to do it in your own strength, you'll end up in prison, right? But the thing is, is that if you actually learn to fight according to God's ways, your weapons are the armor of God. And that's why he says in Ephesians that you should look to put on the armor of God day after day after day. Gird yourself up that you might go out in his strength, not your own. Because when you put on the armor of God, you're looking to your banner, who in fact is your Jehovah Nissi. You're looking to the one in wartime who actually is going to be your banner. When you're trying to accomplish the will of God, all of a sudden, if you do it in your own strength, and so many of us, including myself, have over and over again, right? Try to live this life in God in our own strength, and then found ourselves detached from him, frustrated, discouraged, and beaten down. And he's saying, look to me, my banner, look to my banner, and then as you look to my banner, that rod that actually showed you the previous deliverance, it will be the source of your future deliverance as well because I'm your Jehovah Nissi. I'm the Lord, your banner, and as long as you're looking to me, it does not mean you will not have war. Everybody fully embracing that now? If you're a Christian, that means you're called to war. Hello? This is what the picture he's giving us. We have got to embrace that. If we as a people are going to come into the things of God, you rest in his salvation, but you come into his promises through war. 
And the war that's waged is not on your own, not in your own strength, but it's by looking to the banner. It's by looking to the banner. And what does that practically look like? He says, pray continually. Or as Thessalonians says in another translation, pray without ceasing. And look to Christ, our banner, who wants to introduce his grace into every aspect of our lives and strengthen our hearts, renew our minds, intervene in our relationships, and actually point all of them in a direction that gives him glory. He says, but you've got to look to me, the banner. Jehovah Nisi. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Please turn there if you have a Bible. On your phone if you don't. On the screen if you're without any communication. How do we see Christ as our banner? Well, we know that Paul, when he's talking about the life in God, he says, you know, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Who love him, who had already settled at the previous place, the bitter waters, that they're going to come and turn and obey him. And then he's going to make their bitter waters sweet. He says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So there's a correlation. All of this flows together, right? It's not disconnected. It's all one continuous train of thought by the Spirit of God who's speaking from eternity past until now, his eternal word. And he says, I work all good for all those who love me who have been called according to my purposes. But what about when we come to the fight? Are we abandoned? Are we left alone? The answer is no. Why do we know this? Because God in the Old Testament says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you as you choose to obey me. Jesus, when he began to send out his disciples in his purposes, saying, go to the ends of the earth, to the nations, preaching this good news, this gospel, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. He said, I'm going to give you a promise. As you're doing that, as you're doing that, as you're in the midst of the fight, as you're taking up the armor of God, understanding that the armor of God protects everything on your front side, everything on your front side, but there's no protection for the back. So if you turn away from him and begin to run away from the fight, you're down. You get that? All of the armor of God was when you're advancing by faith into the fight. When you turn away from Jehovah Nisi, your banner, then you're gone. But he says, keep turned towards me. And in the midst of the fight, he says, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. What did that rod represent? The presence of God. The presence of God being with his people to win the battles. And we know that even though the weapons of our warfare are um, not carnal, but they're spiritual, and we know that our battle is in, against flesh and blood, as Ephesians says, but against the rulers and the authorities, meaning ideologies, and also the um, uh, uh, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, we know that that's an attack like the Amalekites coming against the people of God and the church in this present generation until he returns trying to push back his purposes. But he says, I'm going to be Jehovah Nisi in the midst of that for you that my kingdom might come, my will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And we know that Jesus is our banner because Paul writes to the Romans in the midst of a pagan community, much like our pagan pluralistic society today. He gives them the same encouragement and says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, right, these are, these are all the bumper sticker scriptures, Okay, these are the bumper sticker scriptures. Everybody's familiar with these, but they don't know the context or why these things are even important. It's because we're in a fight. It's because God's trying to advance and he needs his people to look to him as Jehovah Nisi. But how are we looking to him as Jehovah Nisi? By understanding this, that God's for us. And then if he's for us, who can be against us? If he's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. Okay, so all of a sudden he's lifting up his son. Jesus said, hey, listen, you're going to crucify me, but behold, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all men to myself. And that which they thought defeated me is the source of my actual victory. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things in the midst of the fight? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who was raised from the dead. And now he's lifted up, not only on the cross, but ascended into heaven. In our minds and thoughts, lifted up over again, our Jehovah Nisi. He's the one who died more than that was raised and is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, just like Moses was interceding for the Israelites when they were on the battlefield against the Amalekites. He's interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? Anybody ever been, um, like, gone through tribulation? Anybody ever been in the midst of distress? Or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than what? Conquerors. But a conqueror, everybody wants to quote things like that, right? I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus who loves me. Well, what does that imply? It implies that you've been in a fight. To be more than a conqueror means that you've actually had to overcome something. You've actually had to conquer something in a fight. Nobody's a conqueror flipping the TV switch. I conquered, like, you know, no, 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 what that is, is a couch, you know, it's like, listen, man, it's like, if you're going to conquer, that means you actually know what battle feels like, and you've recognized it, and you've not only survived, but you've thrived, right, and what God's saying is, I'm making you more than conquerors, but not on your own, but through Jehovah Nisi, your banner, He made us more than conquerors through, through him who loves us. On your own, you're going down. But through him who loves us, we're more than conquerors. Jehovah Nisi. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present, good news, or things to come, 
right? He took them out through the Red Sea, but he says, I got your future too. I read a um, like little poster before. It encouraged me when I was a young Christian. He says, do not worry about tomorrow. God's already there. I was like, I'm done. That's enough. <laughs> I'm done. You know, if he was there before, he'll be there again. Jehovah Nisi. Neither the present nor the few things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, even in our soul, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we remain in that place, looking to our banner, we'll be more than conquerors through him who loved us. Just as he held up that rod, and as, soon, as long as they looked to that glittering object in the sun, right? God, their banner. They were overcoming. He says, so will you in this present life. And you'll bring my kingdom. You'll see people won me, disciples made, churches planted, the poor fed, right? All of these different things that he said are good and right for those who should be co-heirs with me, ruling and reigning, subduing the earth and filling it. He said, this is how you do it if you look to me as Jesus, your Jehovah Nisi, your banner, through his cross and in his name, only after he's made the bitter water sweet. Amen? All right, that's enough for today. <laughs> Worship team, let's come up.